Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. Hey there, everyone. From KQED Public Radio, this is Political Breakdown. I'm Marisa Lagos. And I'm Guy Marzarati, in for Scott Schaefer. And today on The Breakdown, we're talking with the woman who represents oil and gas companies at the state capitol and beyond. That's right. Kathy Rehais-Boyd is here. She's president and CEO of WISBA. That is the Western States Petroleum Association, for those who don't know. And we're going to cover quite a bit with her. But first, Guy, um, big bombshell report today in the San Francisco chronicle by a couple of reporters, uh, including friend of the pod, Joe Garofoli, uh, U.S. Senator Dianne Feinstein, the senior senator from California. Um, really a story about whether she is fit to still be a senator. They talked to four sitting senators, including three Democrats, three former Feinstein staffers and a sitting member of Congress from California, uh, all anonymously, but really raising questions about her mental acuity, her ability to kind of remember conversations and policy areas. And we should say this is a, a, a question that's been swirling for a while about uh, Dianne Feinstein, you know, who has served for a very long time. Yeah, a great mix of both the interviews, also drawing on accounts of events that Feinstein had appeared at. And I think a really great job also in that article of giving context to Feinstein's really complete lack of public engagement with the media, with voters. And they did a good job comparing that with our other U.S. Senator, Alex Padilla. He just took office last year. The Chronicle says he's had 18 town halls with residents, 250 interviews since he took office. Those are neither of those things Feinstein has been doing really for a long time. I mean, I think 2017, they they cite as her last town hall. So it's right. Been and she did some interviews years, in the run yeah. up to the to the 2018 election. But we haven't seen that kind of engagement that I think people deserve to have from their representatives. It also shows, I think, the platform that this has really given Padilla. Most junior senators in their right. first year, you know, might not get this chance uh, in, a, in a big me- media market like California. He has largely because DiFi has been on the sidelines. Yeah. And I mean, I think the the article also raises appropriate sort of questions about the difficulty of having these conversations, about the fact that there are many male senators who have served well beyond their sort of uh, time to function as at the level that we expect. Um, but it is, you know, I think a question for Californians. She is in office until 2024 unless she steps down. And a lot of what is detailed here is not just, you know, is she as sharp as she used to be, but real questions about her ability to grasp policy, really about whether staff is sort of acting as a senator for her. Um, and so, you know, again, with, with all due respect to somebody who's had an incredible career and at her height was a very effective advocate for this state and for the policies uh, that she 
believed in. Um, I think this is going to continue raising questions. Moving on, Guy, you reported this week on uh, another public opinion poll from the Institute for Governmental Studies at Berkeley. What what are they finding about Californians? Yeah, so this poll really looked at top issues for voters and no surprise, housing and homelessness again at the top of the list. I would say, though, some real concerning signs in there for Democrats ahead of the midterm election. I compared this back to a poll, very almost identical poll that the Berkeley IGS had done in September of 2020, asking the same thing. What are the top issues on the mind of Californians that they want the state to address? The biggest drop from then into now was among Democratic voters and their concern over the coronavirus. 22 percent back in September of 2020, 19 months ago, said this is a top issue, just 6 percent now. And I think that's there's some big political ramifications for Democrats if that trend holds. COVID was such a big issue for the party in elections here in 2020, in the Newsom recall in 2021. And if they can't go back to the bank with that issue in the midterms, that, you know, that's a big problem. And the issues that are rising as COVID is falling are, you know, not unexpectedly crime, especially among independent voters and gas prices for voters across the political spectrum. Both very apt because we're going to talk about both of those. I mean, I think what's interesting always about these statewide polls is that you often find, you know, sort of broad agreement on some of these. But then when it comes down to individual races, to your point, the issues that actually play in an Orange County, you know, congressional race versus a Kern County one can be wildly different than what voters sort of said were the top priorities writ large. So it's going to be something to watch. But I certainly think you're right on crime, on gas prices, on quite frankly, a lot of issues. Democrats are on the defensive, even in a deep blue state like this, which I think is a great segue to our next topic. Uh, quickly to hit on um, here in San Francisco, the district attorney, Chase Boudin, is facing a recall in on the June primary ballot on June 7th. Um, this has been sort of, God, recall madness in San Francisco, just got through that school board recall. Um, but really a big sort of point of conversation here, a lot of backlash to him and his policies. Um, and we saw Chase Boudin this week challenge um, a very wealthy man uh, to a debate. Uh, this is William, I'm, I'm going to say his Oberndorf. name wrong. Oberndorf. He is a Republican billionaire uh, who has helped back and put this on the ballot. Um, and, and I, you know, we and I, you and I were talking about just that fact speaks to the challenge for someone like Chase Boudin. Um, a local recall is not like a, a gubernatorial one where you have a bunch of candidates running to replace the person who is facing a recall. In this case, it's a simple yes or no question. And then the mayor gets to replace an appointment, which leaves someone like Boudin really running against nothing other than this type of donor or whoever he can sort of use as a boogeyman because there's no there's no opponent. Yeah, Boudin has a lot of messaging issues with less than a month until ballots go out. But a big one is that. How do you make a recall election a choice and not just a simple referendum? It's something that was so key to Gavin Newsom surviving his recall is being able to make it a choice, being able to say it's me or it's the leading Republican at the time, Larry Elder. Local recall elections, you don't have that luxury. And I think it just speaks to one of many messaging challenges Boudin has Shout out again to to our friend uh, Joe Garofoli. He did an article a couple weeks back talking about how the Boudin anti-recall campaign was already trying to transition from explaining crime statistics, making this about defending Chase Boudin into a campaign more about anti-recall. Let's oppose the Republican recall. Then I get I got a mailer this week that was simply no on F or no on H rather H being the ballot designation SF has given this recall. 
no mention of the recall at all. Right. So we, we're a few weeks no, away from voting people. starts. Yeah. And it's, it's you know, are, is this basically being a let's defend Chase Boudin? Is this a let's stop recalls? Is this no on H? I mean, yeah. they're, they're still searching. No, it's it's a huge challenge. And, you know, to your point about the earlier conversation around explanation, it's like that sort of political trope is like once you start explaining, you've lost the plot anyway. Right. So I do think this is challenging. And, you know, I think that there is parts of Chase Boudin and his leadership and what he's done specifically that are being attacked in this recall. But a lot of the sort of broader rhetoric that is not just among people, you know, who are in the criminal justice system is about issues that go well beyond the DA's office. Homelessness, crime in general, criminal justice reform that the entire state had embraced in recent years. Um, And so I do think that there's this sort of perfect storm. um, And the fact that, you know, I think Chase Boudin has often struggled to sort of make those political alliances and connections that you really do need when it's the type of retail politics that is just how things are done in San Francisco. This is a very political city, right? And so I think what we're seeing is a lot of sort of the typical kind of progressives versus more moderates lining up. But but his big challenge is really communicating to average voters, right? And we'll see. Like you said, ballots drop in less than a month. And a quick promo before we toss the break. We have a big event coming up with District Attorney Chase Boudin here at KQED on May 3rd. You and Scott Schaefer are going to be interviewing him at our great live event event space. Registration is open if you want to come see this in person in San Francisco. If you'd like to watch online, go to kqed.org events and sign up. Yeah, and uh, let us know what you want to know from the district attorney. All right, we're going to take a short break now. When we return, we'll be joined by Western States Petroleum Association President Kathy Reheis-Boyd. You're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just What we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. Welcome back to Political Breakdown. I'm Marisa Lagos here today with guest host Guy Marzarati. And today on The Breakdown, we're thrilled to welcome WISPA president uh, Kathy Reheis Boyd. She is the voice of the oil and gas industry in California, Arizona, Nevada, Washington, and Oregon. Kathy, welcome to The Breakdown. 
Hey, thanks, guys. Thanks for having me. So to start with, just like big picture here, like if you're at a dinner party or your mom or whoever asks, how do you describe what you do? So basically, I would describe it that we communicate, educate and advocate on behalf of the oil and gas industry in five Western states. And so one issue I'm sure you're dealing with now as you have your communications with state lawmakers, with the governor's office, is about how to respond to rising gas prices. What's the message that you're giving to state lawmakers when you talk to them now? I think the most important on and on the education and communication side is for people to understand what are the factors that cause gasoline and diesel to go up and down. Because I think if you don't understand that, it's kind of hard to talk about what you need to do about it. And as I often say, relative to the world or to California, it's supply and demand. And you've got 18 billion people in the world that consume a lot, 18 to 19 million barrels a day of oil. And in California, you got 40 million people who consume a lot, 1.8 million barrels a day of uh, crude oil in the state. And so if you have those out of balance, guys, if they're out of balance and you got not enough supply and high demand, you're going to have high prices. And so when you talk about how to deal with that, you talk about how do you deal with supply it's a, it's, and demand? And how do, you, how do you do policies in this state that can ha- help on both regards? So, you know, we hear a lot of talk about ways to bring up that supply um, or down the demand. But let's start with the supply side of things. What is holding back oil production right now? And how much of this do you see as directly related to what's happening in Ukraine and Russia? That's a great question. Thank you, Marisa. And I would say, you know, in California, let's start there. Um, We are blessed with a resource of crude oil in California. We live under the strictest environmental standards in the world on how to produce crude oil in the state. Everything we produce is consumed. Everything we produce is refined here in the state. If we are not able to produce crude oil here, which we are not able to do today because we are not able to get permits out of the state of California to drill for oil. It just means more foreign imports from places who don't share our values and they don't have the same environmental standards and they put it on a ship and a tanker and get it into the ports of LA and Long Beach or San Francisco and increase greenhouse gases as we do it. So I am very frustrated and concerned about the policy of this state in regards to producing this valuable resource that we have that could definitely minimize the volatility that we're seeing. And I mean, that just, it just really makes that plan makes absolutely no sense to me. I mean, you say definitely. Is there any guarantee? I mean, timing wise, you start more production, more drilling now. When does that actually pay off? And second, this is a global market, right? So if California increases production and OPEC uh, international producers decide to cut back their production, prices could still stay high. Like, where's where's the certainty in all this? There's a lot of certainty if you have the right economic incentives to produce the oil that we have here in California, and that can increase immensely. And so it's not that we don't have the resources. We just don't have the will to produce them, the political will. Um, we have the environmental standards. We have the safety. We have everything to do it, but we just don't have the political will. And if you look at that, guy, to your question on the global standpoint, it's it's the same. Look at the policies we've put in place to this, for the United States to diminish our oil productions. We used to be energy independent. We used to be able to claim that we were energy independent. And every policy we do is to actually go away from that. 
And so it is, again, I mean, when I was very disturbed when the president called up Venezuela to in increase supply to the United States of America, when we are right here in our backyards to take care of ourselves. Are you kidding me? So I just, I just, and it's the same thing in California. So it, and let me be clear, this does not detract from California's goal to meet our climate objectives. It does not. This is not about less oil, guys. It's about less emissions. Because we can make less emissions. We can produce crude oil in a carbon negative way. Why wouldn't we do that? Why would we not do that? Before we get to that, though, let me ask. I mean, if, if tomorrow the state started issuing new permits, when would that actually affect the price of the pump, in your opinion? It's hard to make that prediction exactly, but I can tell you it would have it definitely would have an effect relative to this state's ability to continue to supply. Remember, one point eight million barrels a day. That is not you want to talk about what's not going to turn off tomorrow. That is not going to turn off tomorrow because this governor still requires us to supply the needs that California consumers demand today tomorrow, next week, next month, next year, for the next decade. And so we cannot look at this as if we have to look at the long-term type, guys. We can't just look at tomorrow. We have to really plan this in such a way that it is not so disruptive to the very transition the governor is trying to obtain. And we can be partners in that. We should be investing in allowing this industry to innovate and solve problems, which frankly is in our DNA to do. It's what we do. And, and instead, we do everything to disincentivize this industry. And that is just not a good energy plan. You mentioned the governor. He's in negotiations right now with the legislature trying to arrive at some kind of agreement to help California residents dealing with inflation, which includes sky-high gas prices. There's a debate over whether to send $400 checks, uh, depending on vehicle registration. Democrats in the legislature want to do $200, just focusing on folks' lower income spectrum. There's debate over whether to pause the gas tax increase, suspend the tax altogether. What do you make of those competing plans? Well, I think they're band-aids to a larger solution, which is to really figure out how do we make sure we can provide the energy the state needs while we're transitioning to the future. Those are not going to solve the problem. They are very short term in nature. They're very political in nature. It's like the president releasing 30 million barrels from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, which is about three days, guys. Three days might bring us in next week. These are short term political answers to the broader concern of an energy plan that makes sense for this state so that we don't have rolling blackouts and that we have a plan, a plan B that allows us to continue to supply the needs of the state as we transition. And we don't have that plan. Well, let's talk long term, because you keep talking about wanting to transition. Uh, we just saw a new UN report, the IPCC, warning that new gas and oil projects would push the world well over safe global warming limits. What are we talking about when you talk about ad adapting and changing. I mean, our oil business is trying to diversify and go into renewable energy because the long-term, you know, concerns are real and well documented. And I would, I would not disagree with you at all, Marisa. I will tell you that we absolutely understand how important it is to 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 address climate change. That is not a debate. 
So I want to make that clear. We are very, very committed to this state. We, we supported cap and trade when people weren't even wanting to talk about it. So we've been there to try to meet these goals. And I would tell you, what I'm proud about this industry, they are the most innovative people I have ever had the privilege of representing for 40 years. And I will <laughs> tell you that I, whoever thought, I never thought in my lifetime in your backyard, two refineries would completely convert away from fossil fuels to renewable diesel. And people think, well, renewable diesel isn't that hydrocarbon. There's not a drop of hydrocarbon. It's fats, oils, and grease. Right. So, I mean, how exciting is that? Because what that says is the oil industry does not go away. The oil industry starts doing all kinds of innovative things to reduce emissions because that's what it's about. And I will tell you, there is a dangerous myth that we can have a truly sustainable future without the oil and gas industry. We cannot. Quickly, we cannot. quickly Kathy, you mentioned those, those two refineries switching over out of the five we have here in our region. Is that something you'd expect more refineries to follow suit in the Bay Area or elsewhere in California along that path towards biofuels? I absolutely think biofuels. I mean, I would say biofuels, including hydrogen and renewable natural gas, of which our companies are very excited about, renewable diesel, of course. And then also, I think in wind and solar. I mean, we have companies that are investing in both. And I will tell you, we have companies who are investing in the lithium ion battery technology. We know we cannot rely on just lithium. You know who owns it. It's not us. It's China. So are we going to trade our security from Russia to China? I mean, it's these are big questions, guys. They're important questions. They're complex questions. And that's why I think whenever we look at energy, any forms of energy, traditional oil and gas, renewables, biofuels, alternatives, we've got to look at a life cycle analysis to measure the emissions from beginning to end. Because sometimes people leave out really important things. Like, for instance, sometimes electricity comes from burning natural gas and it comes from in other places burning from coal. So you just got to look at it. Now look at corn. We're now going to have E15. I think you guys, that mm -hmm. just happened recently. So we're going to put more corn-based ethanol and gasoline. Is that good or is that bad? Well, for some, they would say it was good. But others would say, you know, ethanol is certainly not has the energy intensity of gasoline. So it's going to be more energy that it takes to, you know, move a vehicle the same amount of miles. And it's going to increase the cost of corn. Well, what's that going to have the cost of gasoline? It's just not a simple question. It's not a simple issue. None of, so, none of these are simple. <laughs> yeah. So I'm just trying to give you guys a perspective. And I know you guys know this. Yeah. You probably know it better than me. But there's this perspective that, you know, all of this can just be done so easily. And I, I actually am pleased that the issue of energy security has entered the equation on energy transition because it is an important one as we look at pace, scale, and cost. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. I'm Marisa Lagos here with Guy Marzarati. We are talking with Western States Petroleum Association President Kathy Reheis Boyd. Well, I mean, Kathy, can I ask you something that, I mean, sounds a little impolitic, but like, has the invasion of Ukraine been good for the oil industry? Because it feels like the conversation, especially among Democrats, has really shifted as they deal with the rising gas prices. Well, there's another dangerous myth. Of course not. Of course not. We are as concerned as everyone. And we, we are just, um, I don't know, I'm so heartfelt with the courage of the Ukrainian citizens and, and what they're dealing with. So 
I mean, that is just a, a one disrespectful and foolish assertion by whoever would make it. Um, but that being said, I will say that this situation brings to mind the vulnerability that we all face. And it's not just in this situation. We see it when we have hurricanes. We see it when we have any disruption in supply and demand. Now, do I think we should diversify our portfolio? Absolutely. We believe in an all, in, all of the above energy strategy. We should not pick winners and losers. We should let the marketplace bring innovation to solve the problem in the most disruptive way possible. You don't have to unmantle the economy to do it, guys. And if I have to scream from the top of the hill about how important carbon capture sequestration is, I'm just going to, you know, I just jump off a cliff if I have to scream any louder. This state <laughs> Don't has- jump off a cliff when you're on the air with us, okay? <laughs> okay, I won't. But the state has got to take a leadership role in this. What better way to reduce carbon emissions than remove it from the atmosphere? This is a technology being used all over the world in 25 facilities successfully. What do they talk about? I went to Madrid. I went to COP25. It is the conversation of the day. And what is this state doing? Not a whole lot. So I want to see this governor step forward and take a leadership role on carbon capture sequestration. You talk about you talk about where we could be helpful, guys. What does it take? It takes someone who knows how to put a hole in the ground, and it takes someone who knows the geology of where the heck to put it. We know both of those, and so, we have Silicon Valley. And you got you got it. Thank you. That's a very good point. <laughs> so let's get on with it, please. Kathy, you brought up uh, cap and trade a little bit earlier. This is California's landmark environmental law that the state is relying on to drive down emissions. WISPA, you were a big player, key player in getting that passed and extended back in 2017. And I'm curious now, five years later, you know, there's a lot of analysts who say it's not helping the state meet its climate goals. You have environmental justice advocates who are saying the deal is not reducing local pollutants. What's the view from industry? It seems like maybe on your side, you're maybe more in favor of how the, the program has been running. Yeah, and thank you, guys. Great question. And, and a good point is, you know, I, I, I really refer to the California Resources Board, who's in charge of the scoping plan. And that's the, the blueprint for the future. It's a very important document, guys. Scoping plan, big deal. So they look at this and they very much believe it is an effective program. They show how it has reduced the emissions. Why do I support it? It is the balance of cap and trade. Cap, emissions go down, have to go down. There's no change in emissions going down. That is set in statute, that will happen. What is the trading component? It allows business to find the most affordable way to do that. That's why I like cap and trade. It is the marriage of economy and the environment in a program that makes sense and meets the goals. That's why I think it's effective. So I support it. Um, and I think that we will continue to see that happen. Now, I understand the environmental justice concerns. Why? Because cap and trade is CO2. It's global emissions. It is not particulate socks and knocks, which they care about in their backyard for public health and safety. But we have programs for that. They are great programs that have obviously shown reductions in that area, but they're not CO2. So we married those two programs. We have both programs going. But just, Kathy, just to follow on that, you know, there are legislative analysts have said the state is not going to meet its upcoming climate goals just using the cap and trade system. I'm wondering if you have any concerns that at a certain point, the legislature is going to pull the plug and say, look, we're just going to force companies to reduce emissions in the future. 
Well, I think that the Air Resources Board would debate that comment because I think that, that one, they have plans to meet those. Now, I think they have some plans that could be met better, cost or cheaper sooner. And they, I have a feeling and attend, they, they tend to put all their eggs in one basket on the electricity side. I think if you did a diversified portfolio, you would meet them sooner. You'd probably meet them cheaper. You'd probably meet them faster and communities would have more benefit. But that being said, I do believe it's a combination of cap and trade, of low carbon fuel standard, of all the, the state implementation plan. So I, I just think there's a better, faster, cheaper way to get where we need to go. And I don't question the goals. I just question the way we go about it. You mentioned the kind of local air regulation piece of this. There's a proposal right now backed by air regulators in the Bay Area to raise the limit on civil penalties against refineries for air quality violations. What's your view on that proposal? Look, at, we have never been against any kind of enforcement for, for issues that have come up that, that people have not complied with. Our industry, the members I represent, it is their number one issue to comply, probably next to safety. Safety is probably number one and compliance is right there with it. And so um, we stand very firm on on doing everything that we're supposed to comply with the laws and regulations of the state. So um, I have no issue on enforcement issues. Uh, people that don't do what they're supposed to do, that's what that's for. Um, and so what I'd like to focus on instead is how can we collaborate with this state and with the Bay Area District and with the environmental justice community and all, all the consumers we serve to deliver reliable, affordable and ever cleaner energy to the citizens of the state. All right. We only have about a minute left. I'm curious. I've, we've, we've heard that you have a large family of millennial nieces and nephews. And I'm curious, doing the work you do, what do you hear from the next generation? Do you ever get pushed back from your own family? Oh, sure. I always get. Well, you know, yeah, I get pushed back probably from everybody I meet every day. But I will tell you that we have had great conversations. And one thing that I know for sure, guys, I do not have the corner on wisdom and nobody does. And what they bring to the table fascinates me to, to death. Let me just give you one quote. I'm talking about how to have a better fuel transportation system going forward. And their answer is, well, heck, we don't even want to have a car. So there you go. It takes up lots of conversations about, but it's it's a healthy one, right? All right. We are going to leave it there. That was Western States Petroleum Association President Kathy Rehice boyd Kathy, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, Kathy. Thank you, Guy and Kenny. Thank you, Marisa. That's going to do it for this edition of Political Breakdown. We're a production of KQED Public Radio. Guy's our producer. Our engineer is Katie McMurrin. You can find me on Twitter at Guy Marzarati. And I'm Marisa Lagos. You can follow me on Twitter at MLagos. Have a good one. Do you love learning about the San Francisco Bay Area? Its history, its people, its unique blend of cultures? Then you should check out The Bay Curious Book. I'm Katrina Schwartz, editor and producer on The Bay Curious Podcast, and I'm here to let you know that for the month of May, we've worked out a sweet deal for KQED podcast listeners. Right now, you can get The Bay Curious ebook for $1.99. That's right, $1.99. Just search for Bay Curious wherever you get your ebooks or find a link in our show notes. This offer does expire at the end of the month, though, so you'll want to act on it fast. Happy reading! Hi there, I'm Randa Dilfetta from Throughline. 
If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org podcast.